Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hills and Adonis, mm-hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then mm-hmm. a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Biz Tape, your all things music, business, and media podcast. Uh, well, Joe, <laughs> I was going to say my co-host Joseph Wazaleski is with me. Vibin yeah, over just here, vibing. Yeah, just vibing. Shout out to our music guy, Veggie. Yeah, Paul Veggie Beats. He's been doing good on TikTok, doing good in everything in life. So, he's a, I, I think it's incredible how um, how big he's gotten on TikTok. Uh, and uh, you were fans of uh, uh, Philip DeFranco and his wife actually uh, reposted like one of his. Yeah, it broke our uh, mind. The, yeah, and we were just like, it was such a weird experience to be like, that's our friend. <laughs> like <laughs> Anyway, yeah, follow my friend uh, Veggie. He's a really great guy. Yep. And uh, welcome to another deep dive. Yeah. Uh, and if you haven't seen our first deep dive about Eurovision, shame. No, uh, you're <laughs> shame! cool. Shame! Uh, but like uh, basically a... The, well, man, uh, I'm sorry. Deep dive, deep cut, very different. Anyway, uh, like yeah. it's going to be fine. So deep cut, basically what we do on this is I go really in depth on a topic, like real hard. And then I try to explain it to Joe, kind of this origin history. And yep. we put it, you know, all together and try to make it real fun time, basically. Um, and so we got some exciting ones coming up in the future. But this one... Is also very exciting. Not going to say it's not. It's about the history of piracy. Ooh. Um, so, yeah, pirates have been around for a long time, you know, yeah. on the high yes, seas. <laughs> that I'll get into that. So, basically, they've gone from the high sea and now to the MP3. Man, I'm glad you made that joke. So, you're going to love this intro. In all of history, people would rather get a product or item for the lowest price. Any sale, $10 off, 30% off, buy one, get one free. They're all enticing, but one price beats it out. Free. 
People will always try to have the best deal, and apart from someone giving money to you, it is hard to beat. It's an intrinsic truth that has led people to even going around the law to get something. A long time ago, piracy was associated with Blackbeard, but is now more known with LimeWire, Napster, and ironically, the Pirate Bay website. (laughs) (laughs) So let me take you on the journey of piracy and history of music, the changing techniques, and how the business has tried to basically counter it. So music has always been a strange beast when it comes to the idea of copying and distributing it because it works in a very unique way. In other businesses, copying of another one's work into their own version would simply be seen as theft. But in music, it's very commonplace with covers. So Alex Cummings, an associate professor at Georgia State University, puts the unusual situation of music into context by saying, quote, a piece of sheet music is cheaper and easier to photocopy than an entire book. And anyone can play his own version of a song in a way that another writer cannot play the Grapes of Wrath, which is true because that would be really, <laughs> really messed up. Yeah. Um, long ago, listening to someone's song, learning how to play it, and then claiming it as their own was the original form of stealing a song by not giving the author credit. This then evolved into transcribing the song sheet music, either by copying the sheet music directly from another piece of sheet music or transcribing it without the permission of the author. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of how easy it was back in the day because, I mean, if you lived in another town and you just went to another town, listened to a song, and then went back to your old town, no one's going to know. So here's a really fun example. Famously, 14-year-old prodigy Mozart copied the Miserere Reme Deus, Ooh. I had to look that one up in 1770. <laughs> My mom is like screaming at <laughs> this piece of music was only available to be heard in the Vatican publicly on Good Friday and Holy Wednesday or twice a year. So I hope it's great mm-hmm. <laughs> if you can only hear it twice. And an attempt to copy it was punishable by excommunication from the Catholic Church. I, I thought you were going to say execution. I, no. I was like, oh. I mean, I guess spiritually. You're executed, yeah, but I like, guess. I, I, <laughs> so thankfully upon learning, basically this is what happened. So thankfully upon learning about Mozart copying of the piece, presumably from a letter Mozart sent to the Pope himself, which what a brag that is. Yeah. Uh, that's a flex. Pope for sure. Clement the 14th decided to honor Mozart with a papal knighthood. And this is one of the few times that piracy has been rewarded <laughs> in history. <laughs> as I will continue down this list and you will see that is not true. Um, Although it is claimed that Mozart, which is, I think, really cool and shows how much of a prodigy he was, copied it with the multitude of flourishes and ornamental embellishments that the choir had added to the piece over the years that were not present in the original work of music because they had been using the same music for hundreds of years. Yeah. So the choirs had just slowly been adding things, you know, and teaching the next person to do that. Mm-hmm. So impressive Mozart flex right there. <laughs> Anyway, so yeah, it was weird before the advent of sound recordings and publishing rights and covers were already a strange, confusing battle that had not been decided anywhere pretty much in the world universally. And then worse off, sound recordings just come on in and open up an entire medium to be pirated, basically, even Mm -hmm. because the other battle hadn't been finished yet. Let's just keep going with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, So Thomas Edison in 1877 created the first sound recording device using wax cylinders. And this led to an industry, which I love this term, of talking machines, <laughs> which sounds like really old timey. Uh, <laughs> the industry was quick and highly competitive and growing exponentially as the talking machine were becoming uh, basically the next big thing for business, archiving, and obviously music. This paralleling today's fast technology led to a gap between the law and the technology. And so the question became, what was the right 
of compensation for songwriters and music publishers on these records. But the talking machine companies did not wait for this question to be answered. They just went on through. And basically, it was possible to have your song recorded and you have no right to any compensation from it at all. Whoa. Yeah, you would get no money or any. There was no legal right for you to get money for that. Yeah, because I guess there wasn't really precedent before right. that. Right, and I'll get into that. Basically, even songwriters would record their songs and know that there's no standardization of compensation, and they would put it out there because the market was so big that they just had to to get, like, you know, bigger recognition for them and so they could, you know, go around and tour different places and stuff like that. Yeah. And this also led to a multiple different versions of having payouts to no payouts. Um, And as Alex Cummings states in Democracy of Sound, Music Piracy and the Remaking of American Copyright in the 20th Century, quote, phonograph companies largely consumed by patent battles involving the technology of recording itself devoted little attention to asserting rights to the performances contained on their products. And this made sense as a lot of early record companies emphasize more of the quality of recordings rather than the performance on them. Yeah. Uh, And so like people were more enamored with the technology a lot of the time than the actual like performance uh, because they were just amazed that, you know, the talking machine was talking, (laughs) you know what I mean? As opposed to like, well, I don't like this take. I wish they redid a phonograph. No, you know what I mean? It was, it was more like a, uh, almost like a novelty thing. Right. And so the act of it was awesome. And so when there was bigger, better technology in that space of the talking machines, they were even more enamored with that than like a better performance. Mm -hmm. So record companies were also, this is the crazy part to me because it would be unheard of in today. We're directly pirating from each other as well due to the lack of legislation. So for instance, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. Can you imagine like Sony music, like just going like, yeah, universal. uh, I like your songs. Let's just, yeah, we're just taking them. That's basically what they were doing. So for instance, coming States quote, in one point, an example, the band leader, John B holding complained that a company was selling records under the name of his outfit, the Gilmore and holding band, even though they were only recorded for the Colombian phonograph company. Quote, the authority to use the name of Gilmore and his men for the phonograph record making work was granted to me by Mr. Gilmore sometime before his death, Holding wrote in 1897. Quote, the band to date is composed of the same musicians who worked so long under under the direction of his famous master. Is there no redress for such a fraud? And that was kind of the question. It's like, what's going on? And so you have to think at this point in a lot of people's minds, like, it's so strange because people only thought of songs as existing on paper in sheet music mm-hmm. or in their mind. And so as Alex Cummings states, it kind of seems alien to like people in the 21st century, like you or I to comprehend them having no idea of this yeah. because we're so used to the idea of having a compensate or a, like a composition copyright and then an actual like recording copyright. Mm-hmm. But that had not even been established yet. So these people were like, no idea. But after years of battling, basically, between the songwriters and the publishers and the record companies and continual begging to step in, uh, Congress in America finally stepped in to like kind of conquer this unusual problem. And this is like why it was confusing them. As Cummings also wrote an example, quote, this is the reason. If Sousa owns the copyright for his written composition, then how could the talking machine company own a separate copyright for a recorded performance of it? Isn't it the same music? What if two different companies recorded two different versions of the song? Were there copyrights for each recording? Which really reminds me of college and like learning about all of this stuff. Cause yeah. it's confusing. It's weird. Like if you're, you know, 
not in the music industry now to even explain it. But back then they had no precedent. You know? Yeah, I, I, Colin, I can't tell you, it blew my mind when I, uh, I used to make um, mashups back in high school. <laughs> and, and I used to post them on SoundCloud and of course immediately get copyright struck. But like, you know, back back in the day, I didn't know anything about it. And it was it was like, it's such a shocking experience when it happens because you're just like, what? What are you talking about? It's right. just like one thing, right? Isn't it all the same? So that's another thing with this too. Some of these people didn't really think they were doing anything wrong. Yeah. Because there's no precedent to say like you were stealing someone's song. Yeah, or enforcement piracy. of it. Right. right. So like they had no idea. And like, again, it's like cutting edge to you and me. Like, like... Well, it's cutting edge to them, but it's like simple to you and me how this is, should work. Yeah. So Congress first tried in 1897 to pass a bill, and it was to give composers the right to control performances of their work so that music venues, for instance, had to remunerate songwriters. And then the new law, though, basically proved very hard to enforce and only applied to live human performances. And the scratchy sounds that issued from wax cylinders and homes and public phonograph parlors did not count as public performances which is, you know, would be very important later on as, you know, recorded material went on. Yeah. But more importantly, this is an early, primitive, and extremely limited version of the public performance royalty. And this is like the beginning of that actually forming in the United States. And then basically, so they tried that, was not enough, obviously, because like still people were going nuts with recording each other's songs and not getting paid and people complaining about that. So Congress eventually came up with, and you know this, the 1909 Copyright Bill, which provided a set flat rate for publishers and songwriters to be compensated by, quote, flat set rate by the government for each copy of their material produced, i.e., the first mechanical royalty. Mm -hmm. um, and the problem was that basically... <laughs> So that sounds great, right? We got the publishers are all cool. You're going to get paid for your songs or whatever. Sounds great. Well, you're missing the other half of the copyrights. I listed what? The composition and the recording. And Congress did not solve that. They basically punted that problem further in time. They didn't want to <laughs> deal with it. Yeah. So they didn't solve half the issue. The sound recording was still not a copyright. Yeah. Sounds like Congress. Honestly. Right. So they fixed <laughs> half of the problem. Um, which is the only problem is, is that basically this is where bootleggers really start to go wild mm -hmm. because there's no copyright for sound recordings. So you would, you're technically, obviously you're supposed to, you're now, this is where like the legality part gets into it because you, every copy of a recording of a song that you do, you need to get paid a flat rate or a mechanical royalty for it first. So this is where like the illegal part of it starts really taking hold as opposed to unprecedented mm -hmm. or unethical also is the other thing. Um, so the bootleggers basically now decided to just make copies of records and they literally had this for literal decades with little to no consequences. And when I mean decades, I mean decades. This doesn't get solved till the seventies, which I'll get to later. Um, and since these illegal pirate copies of records did not have a copyright to violate on the sound recording, they could just do whatever they wanted. Yeah. Because so free reign. Right. For they're anything. supposed to basically being, they, they're supposed to do a mechanical royalty still technically, but like you can kind of, it's hard for them to make that argument uh, when the thing that you're saying is getting violated isn't even protected. Yeah. So, and yeah, so no enforcement. You're, right. you're going on people's word at that point. Right, exactly. And then the record companies 
first tried to fight these bootleggers by stating how their records were the quote-unquote original and higher quality. Uh, And many of them would be, you know, all these bootlegs would be like inferior because of that. And they were in terms of like loudness and frequency due to the technology because the, the, uh, the technology was like lossy. It wasn't lossless. So like when you were making repetitive copies of a phonograph, it would get worse. Yeah. Um, especially if you're not using the master of the thing. So many artists would basically also be outraged by this because it was devaluing their own brand at the same time because people would start confusing their own records and approved recordings of being those low quality bootlegs because they would hear a song from a bootleg and assume, well, this is going to suck because I already heard you on another record at somebody's house or some other public place. Mm-hmm. But then the artist would go, no, 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 this is like way better because we actually have the technology to do the masters more readily available to us. So it caused a real problem. And then basically they had to figure out something to stop it. So, basically there was a weird way they tried to do this. So quote, this is another Cummings quote. Sometimes judges ruled against bootleggers under the doctrine of unfair compensation, arguing that the pirates freeloaded off the original labels, financial investment in producing and promoting a record by making a record or an artist popular judges reason that label generated quote goodwill with the public, which the pirate unfairly exploited, which look how foreign is that concept? They're not saying you stole my record because they legally can't make that argument. They have to say you are profiteering and lowering our value of marketing, Mm -hmm. which is so strange now because everyone else would just, you know. Because technically it's their property. So it's it's their intellectual property. So that is such a weird argument. Well, it would would almost be like, hey, uh, my, so like, let's say you made a lawnmower Right, I don't. I don't know why I chose the lawnmower. Lawnmower sounds great. Let's but go uh, you made a lawnmower, and your neighbor stole your lawnmower design, and but it was like way crappier. You can't just be like, "Hey, he's literally stealing my idea." You have to be like, "He stole his, the his time." Lawnmower sucks. <laughs> Mine doesn't suck. Well, that's what he would have to argue for people not to buy it, and then in the court he would have to argue like. I spent a lot of time making the lawnmower yeah. and telling people about my lawnmower. Here are all my notes yeah. about the lawnmower. Which is, which is weird because literally in court you couldn't say because like you're saying, it's their intellectual property rights. It's not yet is the thing. Yeah. The song is. The record isn't <laughs> because the compos- like the actual composition is protected, but the recording isn't. Mm-hmm. So according to David Schwartz from the Indiana University School of Law, In 1951, at the height of the piracy vogue, uh, record companies organized their own trade organization to fight illicit record manufacturers, manufacturers, which you may know as the Recording Industry Association of America Mm. or the RIAA, which a lot of people don't know. That's why the RIAA was created to stop piracy originally. Yeah. And then they went into, you know, we make the Grammys. We certify that these are gold. We certify all that kind of stuff. So the RIAA worked together to fight these pirated companies and were effective in getting pirate records out of the brick and mortar stores, which is also nuts because people would just make illegal copies and just put them in a store and sell them unheard of. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. And so uh, now, uh, although it was still a prevalent problem throughout the rest of the decades before it kind of really got before physical media went out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So 
I'm talking about right now specifically like directly copying of a release material. Like you make a copy of a record. Another form of piracy that came up through basically the early 1900s was also called pirate radio or the idea of having a radio station without a license from a governing body to broadcast on the frequency. But this can also include not having the proper license to uh, broadcast the music or not paying the royalties to the artists for these transmissions or the public performance royalty, like I was saying earlier. Uh, I want to put a pin on that because it is so big that I might make my own deep dive about it, just it, or I might make it part of a larger history of radio segment. And it's very vast and rich in history. Mm -hmm. But I want to make a note on it because it technically is piracy, what I'm labeling. Um, So moving past that, a different form of bootleg came into the mainstream really taking hold in the 60s with like the more portable recording equipment and it rose basically through like kind of the grassroots of the 60s in the public and this was the act of recording concerts or the performances of these like usually and sometimes unreleased material without the permission of the artists or their record label um and although important to note it was common for a bootleg so like these recordings of concerts or something to also have pirated material on it. So like a direct copy from a you know record they released and that basically, yeah, it gets really confusing with the naming conventions basically is what I'm trying to get at because you could have quote unquote pirated copy material on what's known as a bootleg, which is usually something that was illegally recorded. Yeah. As opposed to something that you copied from an established recording. And then it gets worse with the naming because there's also something known as a counterfeit, which is where you fake having the actual recording, but it's a pirated recording. Mm. So like, let's say, I don't know, Beatles, like you say you had a let it be. It's say I will sell you let it be. It's not let it be. It's a shitty copy of let it be. Yeah. Or sometimes not even close. So that's a counterfeit. It's important to note this because I I know it sounds like semantics, but again, David Schwartz importantly adds that bootleggers claim that the distinctions are important because these three types of records cause different degrees of financial damage to record companies, AKA a very important difference in court. Yeah. Because you could be getting sued for a lot more money or a lot less money, depending on like what the financial impact of it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, at this point in time, you're still trying to sue because the goodwill of your, you know, your marketing has been tarnished. It's still not protected. And then a label, basically, I want to kind of hit on right here why this is such a big deal to record companies, because I think some people kind of gloss over this. So a label has a personalized agreement with an artist to create, distribute, and exploit recordings for an amount of record cycles. And obviously they're going to take umbrage with bootleg recordings, pirated or counterfeit material. The material could be lowering the image of an, of an artist or investment really in the eyes of the record company or, and basically the real question is where's the record labels cut? Because if you have an exclusivity agreement, they're supposed to be getting all the money from this exclusive artist, basically recordings. And then the other thing is, is that with that exclusivity agreement, it could be devaluing it basically because the value and exclusivity is having exclusivity. And so if you can get it from someone else, then your deal is devalued in that way. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the problem with the piracy at this time is that like these record companies are getting driven up the wall. Funny enough, it got so bad that basically the bootleggers tried to make their businesses of piracy legal. So one such case is Duchess Music Corp versus Stern, and it's a federal case, and it basically revisited the question of whether a manufacturer could pirate 
or presumably bootleg, and artists work legally by paying the two-cent compulsory license fee caused by the 1909 Copyright Act. So just pay, paying the mechanical royalty. Mm-hmm. We illegally recorded this, you didn't know, you know, at a concert, but we'll pay you the mechanical royalty. Trying to make it a legitimate business because, again, there's no recording copyright. <laughs> so the court ruled, though, that the use of this record was clearly outside the scope of the compulsory license scheme and therefore was not allowed, which was very close to making that piracy legal and basically having artists have kind of no choice into, oh, I'm getting paid for it, so then it's cool. Yeah. Um, although, basically, the good part about piracy is that it did create, especially in bootlegs, a lot of recordings that maybe we wouldn't see ever. So like Bob Dylan's basement tapes or many Grateful Dead recordings. But basically, the time had come eventually for the copyright of sound recordings to be established and officially to be able to punish bootleggers because it was confusing the market so much and the RAA was pushing hard. So Congress passed the Sound Recording Act of 1971, which extended federal copyright to sound recordings. So we're finally there. Your recording is protected under copyright law. And in addition, the Supreme Court allowed in 1973 the ability for states to create their own anti-piracy laws, which was really interesting due to the federal government usually being the exclusive entity of copyright law. Mm -hmm. And as Cummings writes, quote, state laws potentially allowed infinite protections for recordings arguably violating the, quote, limited times provision of the Constitution, which I thought was an interesting legal argument of that. But that's how bad piracy was, is that it just came back full hammer, and they even gave the states usually a federal protection to, you know, go against it. So either way, at the state and federal level, labels and artists now have a way of protecting their sound recordings. And the important word is their sound recordings, basically, because it did not fix all the problems, the illegal taping or bootlegs of concerts was still legal by that point, because you have to think they're protecting the copyrights they own. They don't own the copyright necessarily to a recording that someone else makes. Mm-hmm. They ma- they own that recording yeah. by, by transfixing it. Basically again, there's the publishing side of it and the mechanical royalty side of it there. But like that part of the argument is still there. And so basically because they kind of couldn't stop it and it would take another couple of decades for this problem to kind of be, well, try to be stopped. Uh, a lot of bands just accepted it. So a lot of bands even have the culture of like promoting it. So like the Grateful Dead, Dave Matthews Band and Blues Travelers all were like active in promoting it basically and saying like, yeah, you could do that. That sounds cool. And just kind of putting it as a promotional cost. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like this gets to our fans. This gets to more people. We can't stop it, you know. And it seems like they like it. You right. Know? It's like, uh, you know, if you can't beat them, join them kind of yeah. thing. Um, so in America, the copyright protection, we're in the 70s now, the copyright protection had been sailing ahead at a slow pace. And for the rest of the world, they had been super lagging behind. Um, and so to get up to speed, as Billboard states, the U.S. signed as part of an agreement. And the agreement is called the Agreement on Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights, or TRIPS for short which is part of the Uruguay round of trade negotiations, which was signed by 111 nations in 1994 and all of which signed the treaty and were obligated to adopt legislation in their countries to implement it, which is important later because basically the same thing happens. So thanks to some push from the RIA, the treaty created the federal anti-bootleg statute, um, 
to kind of remedy what I'm talking about of illegally recording sounds or so illegally recording sounds. Yes. But concert recordings. Yeah. Um, and what this did is it quote criminalizes the unauthorized fixation of trafficking in sound recordings and music videos of live musical performances. And in 1997, it was bolstered by adding the ability for victims to add a financial impact statement to help determine sentencing and border patrol to seize and label bootlegs as contraband, which is very important because a lot of these were coming out of other countries Mm -hmm. that had less restrictions and then coming into the United States. So like that's kind of uh, was a huge problem at the time is that it wasn't even just in the United States. Um, so over the years through the statute, basically the statute has had a number of problems. It's been struck down and ruled unconstitutional and then it was revived multiple times. Hmm. So to make this short and me not reading literally 20 court cases, <laughs> uh, the important distinction of this legislation falls under if this legislation falls under the copyright clause or the commerce clause commerce clause of the law so the argument is made that basically if it falls under the copyright clause and this is like the dissenting opinion why we want it gone that the statute should be unconstitutional as it conflicts with current copyright laws about duration of copyrights and the lack of specific copyright of a live performance so there's not really again there's not a copyright about live performances so that's kind of the argument there yeah And if it deals under the commerce clause, this is really simple. They think it's unconstitutional because that has, because the bill deals really with intellectual property. So it shouldn't be under commerce. So you can't say it's under either one. So it's unconstitutional. So this has been debated multiple times and it's gone back and forth. And the statute technically exists as of 2012, but it's extremely unresolved and legally gray. And although suing someone over the financial of an a bootleg is very possible and expensive, it's probably better than more of the criminal route, to be honest, because of how weird the implementation of this is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the concert bootleg has died down as time has gone on with the advent of cell phone recording and the ease of access of live performances over the internet. As many acts now see bootlegging of shows as more of a promotional opportunity, kind of like those early ad- like adopters of Grateful Dead and Dave Matthews. Also, concerts are largely largely viewed by the public as more experiential now, so it can kind of be seen as hard to replicate over an electronic device. Yeah, um, especially with the advent of more advanced lighting, uh, you know, video and audio technology. Again, it can still be heavily policed by lawsuits, uh, but the criminal side is still a mess. Like to criminally get someone under the statute is really hard. Mm -hmm. So you probably lose most of your savings, but you might not go to jail necessarily unless they're really after you. Oh, just my savings. (laughs) Right. Um, you can still go. I mean, there's a way of doing it again. I'm not even talking about state laws. There's still state laws with it, but this is like federally. Yeah. Um, Okay. So the issue of bootlegs live, basically I'm going to leave right there because it kind of got tabled for a while because, in the late 90s and early 2000s, a particularly huge issue took the spotlight of the RAA music industry in the world, and that is internet piracy, which we all oh, are very yeah, familiar. <laughs> so over just a few years, this internet piracy flipped the entire business model of the music business and caused a revelation of how music is sold and marketed. And I'm not even exaggerating if you like never looked into this with one company in particular that became the one to show the music industry that their income was in jeopardy, which is Napster, Mm -hmm. Uh, which I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with the term, but I'll explain why it was really deadly. So before Napster, there's a lot of technological issues with 
basically doing internet piracy or trying to get a free song over the internet. As Alex Winter, the director of the documentary Downloaded, explains, he had, quote, friends who had spent 14 hours trying to pull a butthole server song off online, and it would fail, and they would try again, and it would fail again. (laughs) It would just take so long. It's not worth the effort. And that was kind of the room and the norm as peer-to-peer file sharing became a thing and simplified the process. And the ease of use argument at this point, which most of the public will follow, was going to the record companies to, to go into a legal store and buy a physical thing, a CD or something like that. Although it is important that bootlegging in terms of like getting special recordings of stuff that wasn't in stores anymore or never was in stores, like a illegally recorded uh, concert was still alive and well on the internet because that's the only place you can get it. So that's the easiest ease of access if you really want it. Mm-hmm. Um, so here we go again. Even though the technology was developing fast, the world took note and members of the World Intellectual Property Organization, which has been around since the 70s, thanks to the UN, adopted the World Intellectual Property Organization Copyright Treaty in 1996, which means like the anti-bootlegging statute, countries such as the U.S. would have to add laws to comply with the treaty. And most notably, at the time, only six countries in the world had not ratified this treaty. So it's pretty worldwide. And most of these countries are smaller world countries, not, you know, giant uh, markets is what I'm trying to say. So the U.S. had to create the infamous... 1998 Digital Millennia Copyright Act, or as people might recognize it, especially from YouTube, the DMCA agreement. Um, the DMCA, again, I will also might do a deep dive on this because it deals a lot with different aspects of copyright. But for the importance of this deep dive, there's one really important thing. It first make basically it's making it a violation to circumvent a technology, a technological measure to access a copyrighted work and then making it a violation to traffic in devices whose purpose is to circumvent the technological measure to either access the work or otherwise inf- fringe the copyright. So basically what this is doing is it is making it no matter what the technology is. If you're using the technology to try to circumvent copyright, then it's, then that is a violation of copyright Hmm. because copyright law kept trying to write itself forward all the time by saying like a phonograph, a record, a, you know, a CD, a tape cassette, an eight track. But instead they basically made an anti circumvention policy into United States law. So it's like, whatever it is, if you're violating, violating copyright, you're violating copyright. Yeah. Um, so Napster, even though this happened in 1998, did become a company in May 1999 officially and would still march on disregarding the DMCA and most of the world's updated digital copyright law equivalents. And Napster really brought to the forefront convenience as opposed to the slow nature of most of the time failed downloads of before. And quickly explained by the history of piracy on CSUN, quote, registration is instant free and requires no contact or other personal information. And more importantly, quote, the Napster server acts as a name server and a search engine, all using proprietary protocols, which led to, quote, once users able to register, well, once users were able to register with Napster, they were free to file swap slash share anything they had on their hard drive or they had downloaded, such as music, which is the thing that really took this over the top is the search engine functionality and the way the peer-to-peer file sharing works of having, you know, saying like, you can look at this Napster, you can look at this and having an entire network of, you know, all these computers doing it. Yeah. Peer-to-peer. 
when mm-hmm. that's where it comes from. Due to its ease of use, Napster quickly, as Tom Lamont states from The Guardian, by March of 2000 had 20 million users, and in the summer of 2000 had 14,000 songs being downloaded every minute. Jesus Christ. <laughs> if you want, uh, for your gamers out there, the Steam Maximum that just got hit the other day here in December of 2020 was 25 million users. Damn. So imagine a majority of Steam all at the same time illegally downloading games, and that's basically the equivalent for, for music. Mm which is nuts. It, it, it's not to be, you know, kind of put down. This is a lot of money going away. Yeah. So lawsuits are generally very expensive, but Napster was siphoning off so much potential customers that the RIAA decided to get involved. And remember I said about them earlier, their trade commission that mostly deals with stopping piracy all the way back from the fifties. And as again, Tom Lamont from the guardian points out, quote, In the Washington offices of the Recording Industry Association of America, execs were encouraged to play a game that was informally called Stump the Napster. In other (laughs) words, try to find at least one of their singles that wasn't being shared online. All were appropriately horrified, and an action was launched against Napster for breach of copyright. Hmm. Because every freaking song was on there. So they saw it as a threat, and Lamont emphasizes that basically the RIA was not messing around. Uh, and the year 2000 was actually the first year to register a dip in record sales and they were out for blood. And there's kind of an argument that it's not all because of piracy. I just want to be transparent there. It's kind of practices and the way of changing, uh, consumer habits. But at the same time, it's a huge deal. So on top of suing Napster, they sued 18,000 users, (sighs) which would result in year long legal battles. Like, or years-long legal battles. And again, the technology was peer-to-peer file sharing, so Napster didn't have servers of all MP3s. And they were user-to-user, and that's how they were using it to sue people because you were directly having the content on you or sharing it with somebody so else. So were those 18, you said 18,000, right? 18,000. So 18,000 people, peer-to-peer file sharing, I'm, I'm assuming 18,000 of them were not the creators of Napster, right? These were like regular people who were... The, uh, the 18,000 users are regular people. Okay. Not yeah, Napster. So that's insane. <laughs> and so... Yeah, and Winters notes from uh, as he was continuing to make his documentary downloaded, he met a woman who a decade later was still being sued for mil- multi millions of dollars for downloading twenty six songs on Napster. Oh my, multi million dollars! Mm-hmm. What was she doing with them? <laughs> like, was she just like handing them out like candy on the street? Right. I get. I mean, for downloading. Like, yeah, Not- I guess the downloading is even more. But right. uh, isn't that kind of intense so there's actually an argument i've seen that some of these lawsuits have like and you're seeing why it's weird criminally because a lot of these companies want so much money for it because it's projected entertainment revenue revenue literally so that's why it really sucks criminally because there's been a lot of arguments straight up that say this is a cruel and unusual punishment yeah because it's so much money like you know yeah i mean mean, it's it's like it, like because what, the, the song RIAA, itself is worth like maybe three dollars. Because at on the, the time. criminal side, the RAA would go, well, we want you know basically these people to get a you know huge never do this again. These are the people we're making an example of, and then the government will go, sure, we, you guys are the experts, and then they'll put you know how's five hundred thousand dollars if you violate this thing, and the attorneys will go in there and go, I think this is unusually or cruel punishment on the you know 
criminal side yeah <laughs> as opposed to the suing side so that's why it also the criminal side's weird uh important to note the woman's case was not confirmed to be from the ria either in the article i was reading but it leads me into also a lot of notable artists were suing a lot such as dr dre and the meme that it became metallica <laughs> to hate napster and sue everything else Legendary. which you know La- lars ulrich even spoke in front of congress about mm-hmm. how much it was that. And there's a really funny clip of him talking to like a hypothetical person about it. I love it. Anyway, <laughs> I'd look it up if I were you. In February of 2001, the courts ruled in favor of the RIA against Napster and eventually with them having to pay a quote $26 million settlement for the past unauthorized use of music and an advance against future licensing of $10 million. And so Napster would either have to start charging or stop. And funny enough, this led to a 48-hour period where people were rushing to Napster before it went to paid, basically, or Basically just to download everything, right? And so in an effect to stop piracy, they created a super piracy event of 48 hours on Napster of people going nuts to try to get as many songs as they wanted. Yeah. Um, Overall, Napster had has faded into basically obscure legend at this point. It tried to transition into a subscription service. It did not work out well because it was a little before its time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the landscape has now changed to streaming. And basically even now it's a dwarf of the giant that it used to be. Yeah. Um, and even with Napster being struck hard, many copycat websites would appear and the floodgates had basically opened. They could not close it. So peer-to-peer file sharing was rapidly expanding and more protocols uh, even were created, such as a version of peer-to-peer called BitTorrent, which you might know, and it emerged in 2001, which is actually a lot of people associate with the BitTorrent site or it's uh, the derivative name of it, but it's an actual protocol of file sharing Mm. is like what it is, even though the BitTorrent site does exist. Even other protocols of data would be adopted in piracy, such as file transfer protocols to explain the options of digital file sharing. There are so many that the RIA and the governments kept going down on these websites, but they would just emerge again from some other place. Yeah. Some of the notable examples are like Frostwire, LimeWire, and Pirate Bay, like just to name a few. Um, and it would take years, but eventually the ease of use argument would come back to the music industry for the public and by adopting and creating their own versions of basically the pirates technology. So the ability to buy songs directly and download them would be a compromise for the music industry, especially from the CD days of before and with the launch of the iTunes store in 2003, Mm -hmm. which was a huge deal at the time because quote, it was the only legal digital catalog of music to offer songs from all five major record labels at the same time. Remember that when it wasn't three, it was five. Yeah. Uh, Though so many torrenting sites would still be available at large scale, still throwing a wrench in the industry's business model. Moving further along, streaming eventually would become so convenient for people that paying a monthly fee would be worth not having the headache of waiting for an album to download fast enough or buying one album on iTunes or Google Play Store for the same monthly fee that would give you unlimited access to a bunch of songs. Mm-hmm. So funny enough, lots of these newer streaming companies would first start with not having ever, like basically not having every license in place or be kind of like, you know, we're just in seeing the water here. I know I don't have every license and some of them are even derived from older pirate pirated websites and technology. And so basically because of the effort of them making, trying to make it legal, a lot of these music industry companies gave them leeway to go, okay, we'll figure this out. We'll just figure it out. Obviously they're down their throats, but they're going to figure it out as opposed to immediately suing with the pirates because 
they're trying to be legal as, yeah. opposed, so, as opposed to pirates. So most notably Spotify, if, if you don't know what Spotify is, I don't know how you're listening to this, um, <laughs> changed the landscape becoming top of its field with the U S launch in 2011. But soon other tech companies such as Apple and Google would create their own versions of streaming apps. The aftermath though, was a pill to swallow for the music industry as recorded music had been had been devalued in the public's mind due to access to these sites. Mm -hmm. Selling a new CD or an iTunes album for $10 wasn't a deal in the eyes of consumers anymore. If you got it for next to nothing on the internet. And though because of the ease of use, legal streaming became an easy pill to swallow for the same price as a full album, basically, which was crazy at the time. So piracy in general started to die, but not entirely but by a large margin due to the ease of access. Piracy sites still were a great place to find obscure versions of like live show recordings or you know recordings that aren't released anymore. But even the demand of that had died down because content was so easily available to make and distribute on these platforms. For instance, the cost of putting out a CD of a really niche concert would be astronomical, especially with not a lot of people buying it. But with the streaming stuff, it's literally a fraction of the price to just get it on there. Yeah. Um, Moving to the present, in the last couple of years, streaming has definitely put a worthy competitor to the piracy, but it's not all gone. One that was popular for a while was stream ripping, which is essentially with YouTube most of the time, as YouTube was a free service other than some ads before and after the music. They also did it with Spotify and some other streaming services, but YouTube was the top dog because you didn't have to have any monetary gain or monetary funds to go into it to get access to all this music. Mm -hmm. So one notable one was YouTube MP3.com, which was boasting more than 60 million unique users per month and is estimated to be responsible for upwards of 40% of all unlawful stream ripping music from YouTube. Um, and this is exactly what it sounds like. Basically you would put in a YouTube link into the site and it would rip out an MP3 for you to download. Yep. Although the site was shut down after a lawsuit from, you guessed it, the RIAA, after they gained the right to determine a third party that would handle the site. Again, YouTube, like the advent of stream and streaming, would basically adopt what YouTube.mp3 would do by offering a legal version of it, and that's basically in YouTube Premium now where you can download videos. Mm-hmm. So, There's still YouTube ripping sites though there still are the but it's not even close to youtube uh mp3, MP3. like yeah. it, it's it, you know they were 40 percent of the market well i've noticed now too because i've had to download some stuff off of youtube before uh it is very hard if you have any kind of music for for it to download it won't do it but if it's like a sound effect or something like that it it doesn't really right and it, it's kind of weird because like with the advent of like uh obs and like other more stream like uh, recording software that's more prevalent now. It's kind of easy to do it through that way. Yeah, and it's higher quality. And that that must be. It's probably insane to police because like it's all local. So like, yeah, exactly. What are you do? Um, with all that in mind, basically streaming had been popular and relatively economic friendly uh, conditions in the 2010s, but now in 2020, COVID has given piracy a boost in these tough times. Uh, As Rolling Stone reports, quote, global media piracy and analytics company Muso released data which showed that movie piracy during the COVID lockdown was surged to unprecedented levels, uh, up 41% in the U.S. in the final weeks of March 2020 versus the same period of the prior month. Uh, And with economic regular stress from the virus, a few theories uh, that have been floating around in this article that kind of explain why people might be doing this. It's also the same for mu- music, pretty much. So the levels have gone up a pretty dramatic amount, but not as close as movies, mm-hmm. uh, because movies have a you know very gated 
uh, wall compared to music. Like you go on Spotify, it's very rare unless you're, I guess, a title fanboy out there still uh, to have like a well, like uh, paywall gated music. Yeah, but movies is a little different. Um, so basically, uh, music still is getting hit with it. And so here are the theories. Basically, they said uh, people might be craving more ownership, more in an uncertain world, even if there's means of getting it illegally. Uh, another one is script subscription fatigue, which we've talked before on the regular podcast, and it might've caused people to basically reevaluate how they spend their money, especially in not so economic friendly times. Uh, also basically people kind of make the argument and the author does. And he says, say they usually stream like 80% of the time listening to grateful dead on a streaming service. And now they have a moment to question the economics of their monthly streaming subscription, because like, why are you doing it for one band? Yeah. Or lastly, that quote that having returned to the piracy of their homes, people are firing up the pirate bay or kick ass torrents because they, because the last time they did it, uh, they were using the technology of yesteryear. So maybe just to see if it's updated pretty Mm much. Um, other than that, Muso, uh, like basically Spotify even reported in quarter one that people were canceling a lot in like the 2020 and they did like, basically it was like one out of six people would do the survey at the end saying like why, and they couldn't really get a good answer. Yeah. But part of it, and they didn't say like where they were going. So, so it could piracy. be going to piracy yeah. because like, yeah, it's just hard to make the argument if you are or not. Um, but you know, it's weird. And so like, I guess I'll just, um, pose the question to you, Joe is like, there's two main questions at the end of this first. Well, first, if you didn't know the United States is lagging behind copyright the entire time. So that's just history. Um, let's talk about the ethics of piracy for a minute. Mm -hmm. So like I was saying, a lot of these bands have kind of turned their tune because, especially with their music being devalued over the years with streaming. Yeah. They've kind of turned the other leaf of being like, I guess if you're going to pirate, that's going to help me. Cause you'll, th- you know, maybe it's buy a record in the future at that point. Right. Kind of not free. If you right. really think about it, I would, I would consider a promotional cost yeah. more than a free thing. And like, I think it's really interesting from an artist perspective and a fan perspective to think about like piracy and like, how that's viewed because if if you don't know listening, especially like traditional revenue from recorded music and even mechanical royalties is low in comparison to some of these touring payouts most of the time. Yeah. It's a fret like it basically the model and what I was saying it kicked on its head is that the model of like, you know, you get paid for your records used to be astronomically high and then you tour to promote more record sales. Yeah. Now, now it's you, the opposite. You do a record, a record to tour. To tour. Yep. And so then you can go tour and then make money selling shirts or other, you know, private events and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I don't like, it's interesting to think about like the ethics of, is this ethical? I mean, it's hard to say because like you have to kind of, you have to kind of break it down to like, what is music? You know, this is this is such a hard thing to police and such a hard thing to um, see whether it's ethical or not, because uh, music has been so uh, dependent on human culture and just how music has changed over the years, like Mm -hmm. through millennia and how we've uh, adopted new technology in order to it's basically a, a record is holding a piece of time, right? and marketing that time and Mm -hmm. like people are listening to that one take 
over and over and over again. Um, it's interesting to me, like what you're saying here, how like we started like talking about like Mozart's time and stuff. It was like you went there to see a performance of it. Yeah. You were there for the person. Mm-hmm. And then like basically because the record companies and artists and stuff had such a value to make a record valuable, you know, and by making it have a copyright and making all these restrictions to, you know, illegally having it and making paywalls for it and stuff. They basically flipped it on its paradigm where people were like more of like, I'm more valued by your record than you are as a person. Yeah. And now I feel like with the fall of the record and value, they it's value the, the artist more. Yeah. It's like back to 1700s where it's like literally like, Oh, I want to go see Mozart, you know, perform his fugue. I, I don't really care. Like, I don't think like if you're in the 1700s, you're like, I don't really care about the recording of the fugue as much as seeing, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like kind of the same way or kind of like I was saying earlier, how these people were more enamored with the technology than they were the performances. Mm-hmm. So like, I think that's the interesting thing. I, I think it really depends on one with the artist kind of feels. Cause I know there's like I was saying, there's some bands like, especially like grateful dead, Dave Matthews band kind of bands, Jamie bands usually are kind of, uh, always in this bout of like being like, well, you know, these great performances would go down in history and never be seen again. Yeah. And that's the thing that I think differentiates those bands from others where they're performing the same songs every concert, you know, uh, or where, you know, the grateful dead thing, it's going to be a different set every time. So I don't think to them it's maybe as big of a deal as if it's like I literally already have the song out on streaming. So yeah, yeah. I was I would say like what you're maybe just summarizing to say if I'm wrong is it's like it depends on what the band personally thinks. And yeah. I think it depends on if it's kind of coming what what is coming out of basically of piracy. Mm-hmm. If it's coming out of like more of a historical like context kind of thing. Like you're, you know, almost kind of doing what the library of Congress does with records where they like seal them away. Like you feel like you're capturing a moment in history or something. Then like, I personally am not really that mad at you if you pirated, like if I was playing a song or something. Cause at a certain level, it's educational and it's, uh, I actually see a lot of people, uh, over the years have argued piracy as a way of cataloging and, uh, being of historical significance because it's, you know, like you said, these things are never going to come back again. Um, except now that we can, we have them, we have evidence of this stuff. Uh, and, uh, some musicians will even say that pirating is good because at the end of the day, a lot of these, uh, recordings are marked up too high or people can't get access, um, depending on, on how much, uh, money they have. Uh, and so they still want people to experience their music. And so they, uh, they don't really care what their fans do as long as they hear their music. Yeah, I definitely, I completely agree with that. And I think intent is very important in that. Yeah. And I think the thing that has really shown the intent argument is the advent of the cell phone and like recording and stuff like that. Because if you went back to like 1980 and like you literally were like, Oh, I went to, I don't know, like a Guns N' Roses concert and I like, you know, like the bad movie commercials where the guy in the hoodie is like there with <laughs> yeah. the recording. Yeah, and it's like a perfect recording. Right. But, but he's like hiding it. He's hiding his... the camera under his like chest. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like the, everyone there would be like, what the fuck are you doing, man? FBI warning. But like now we're used to that as a society of like, you know, literally going like this and being like, oh, I'm just filming it. I would say it's frowned upon uh, with movies more than it is oh, yeah. uh, with concerts i think everybody movies is a different is a definitely different thing so i'll I'll leave that aside but like in the music front 
it's it's very strange because like I I think it would be interesting like if you could have a time machine and go back to like a performer from the 30s yeah and like they understood like you were recording them I feel like they would come up to you after and they'd go like so are you gonna pay me for that mm-hmm. you know what I mean now it's just like part of the game and like I do think there's a difference between you recording it on your cell phone and like being like, Oh, I just want to put it on my story. This will help you with like some promotion or whatever. Then like, Oh, I'm going to take this somewhere and sell it. Yeah. I think, uh, another difference is very rarely are fans recording the entire set. I mean, there are some fans. Yeah. That could go into intent. Yeah. Like, and so like, you know, putting it on your, your Snapchat or Instagram story or whatever, uh, you're doing it on. It's like, you know, 30 seconds. It's the equivalent of back in the day going like, you know, in the like really corny, like crooners would be like, tell your friends about us. Yeah. Yeah. It's the equivalent, but you're doing it digitally through your phone. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, I, I think, yeah, the ethics of it is just nuts. Now where I think it, is shitty and i think most people would agree it's shitty is when you're pirating uh someone else's recording or property and then you try to sell it as your own i think that's when it gets really i think really, i completely agree with yeah. that and i think now which is, i don't really see a lot of yeah I, I i was about to say i think that has gone down as time has gone on yeah like the idea because i think the I, policing for that is has been, strict is strict yeah and so like i was saying like you know the idea of a counterfeit it's strict now. And since we don't usually deal, the other problem is, is we don't deal with physical goods as much for Mm -hmm. that to work because back in the day you could make, like I was reading these examples of like, you know, you could make a Beatles album like that looks like a, you know, greatest hits album and put it in a record vinyl and make like really shitty pictures and put it together. And people would think, Oh, this is like a weird off catalog greatest hits album. But now it's like, is it on the Spotify page that they're actually you know, the check mark Spotify page. Is it, you know, actually this sound the same as the actual one, yeah. you know, because like the bar for, because of digital copying and it being lossless most of the time, then that makes it so much higher. Cause people will just go, well, this is the worst version. I'm not listening to this. I'm not paying for this. You know what I mean? If somebody tried to counterfeit something like that. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, it's, I would definitely say that. And then bootlegs, like I'm saying, I definitely think it's about the ethics of it, especially I feel like if you were going to do it, like I don't personally do it. And so like, I feel like if you're going to do it, I feel like you should probably look up what the band feels on it. Mm-hmm. And like, even then it's risky to assume, you know? Yeah. Because a lot of the times they're not even publicly going to say anything right. now because it, honestly it's pirate piracy. Although you said has an uptick recently due to mm-hmm. COVID and stuff. It seems like music piracy is still kind of on what we've decline. done. What we've done basically, in my opinion is from Napster and most of this stuff is we've adopted the technology of piracy and made it into a model that is legally acceptable. Yeah. Streaming. Streaming. But like at the same time, there's a, you know, I feel like kind of going to my 1920s example is like YouTube to someone who was a musician from the 1930s would seem like theft to them. Yeah. Like to have like your soul, like somebody put up your, you know, I played here at this jazz club or something. It'd be theft to like put the version of him playing it. But you know, it's just, you know, that's the thing. It's just such a sticky situation. And we talked about how the business model just completely flipped because of it, because they had to adjust to it because it was opening a floodgate. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so yeah, I'm going to leave y'all with this. Uh, so basically, here's my end statement. Piracy is, piracy is a never-ending battle between businesses and consumers. So piracy, like we are saying, for some artists is considered a good thing, and so for others it's considered a slap in the face and theft. Um, some consumers think that they would never, you know, are never going to touch a piracy website while others download full artist careers in a short amount of time. And to protect intellectual property value, piracy must be condemned. But at the same time, we live in a space where you can access performance and music for free on sites like YouTube. So does that devalue the argument that piracy is devaluing things? You know what I mean? The point is we cannot give you an answer on the ethics of piracy because mankind has tried to, and we felt we got it right. We're basically already five steps behind technology when we think we got the answer correct. Yeah. Um, then basically the recordings would have been lost to time if they didn't get recorded in the first place, like we're saying, or if, if they weren't officially released or commissioned. And so society is like, you know, the art is it, what's, is it valuable to protect something and lose other things to protect it? You know what I mean? And so I'm going to leave you with a quote that I think really embodies the weirdness that we live in with piracy and artists from Alex Cummings, again, from the University of Georgia. And he goes, quote, a fan could illegally download Prince's entire discography within minutes of the artist passing in 2016, but he or she could not stream his songs on Spotify because the purple one had the legal right to keep them off of all streaming platforms. Thanks for listening to the Biz Tape, your all things music, business, and media podcast. You can follow us on our socials at the Biz Tape on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also, you can email us at thebiztapepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, questions, concerns, deep dive suggestions, anything in between. Uh, we got a weekly show, if you don't know about that too, where we talk about what's going on in the news every week involving music, business, and media. Thank you so much, and we hope to see you around. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis, mm-hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. 
Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.